How do you want to be remembered when you're gone? How do you want to be remembered when you're no longer around? Friends, have you ever thought about that? How do you want to be remembered when you retire from your vocational career? When you leave your present job? When you move from your present neighborhood? Students, how do you want to be remembered by your teammates when the volleyball or football season is over? How do you want to be remembered by your classmates when the school year ends? How do you want to be remembered when you graduate from middle school or high school or college one day? Parents, how do you want to be remembered by your kids when you're done raising your children in the home? Consider the day when your kids move out of the house once and for all and they're out on their own. How do you want them to remember their upbringing when they were under your care? Members of CCBC, how do you want to be remembered if or when, for whatever reason, you leave our church? When you have that last lunch with your closest friend here, or when you have that difficult but necessary conversation about sin and repentance with a wayward church member, how do you want to be remembered when you attend that last Lord's Day worship gathering with this church? When you lead that last meeting in your ministry, when you teach your last Bible study, when you preach your last sermon. Friends, how do you want to be remembered when you're dead and gone and the memory of your life passes through people's minds? What do you want to be said of you when people pick up the morning newspaper and they see your picture and read your obituary? Well, when we contemplate how brief our life is on this earth, our mortality, our focus of what truly matters usually gets a whole lot clearer, doesn't it? Now, knowing that we're going to die doesn't remove all of our problems, and it doesn't necessarily make life easier either, but death certainly has a way of clarifying for us what truly matters to us, what we believe defines us, what keeps us motivated in life. Death helps us have clarity on what our priorities should be and how we should uphold them for the rest of our days. Friends, when you contemplate the fact, not fiction, but the fact that one day you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an accounting of your life, what do you think the Lord will say about you on that day? What will the Lord remember about the life and stewardship he gave you? If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 232. Nehemiah chapter 13. If this is your first time with us, we are concluding with the last sermon in our current sermon series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If you want to listen to any of the previous sermons, you can catch those on the church podcast online. 
Friends, we began this sermon series back on July 10th. So basically tomorrow will be three months ago we began a journey in this book. And church, hasn't it been a wonderful book to study? I would encourage each one of us to reread through it. Maybe a year from now. Look at your notes if you took some and see how much the Lord has grown you even from this time to next year. In this book, we've seen God do some amazing things in the lives of his people. And by God's miraculous and wondrous provision, we've seen the rebuilding of walls that were once in shambles and in great disrepair. But more importantly, what I hope you and I have seen is that we've also seen the rebuilding of lives. Beloved, we've witnessed a picture from the Old Testament of what happens when our great God brings about reformation and revival among his people. So to review, in Nehemiah chapters 1 to 6, we saw how God provided the leaders, the resources, and the favor and protection needed to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Then in chapter 7, we saw God's faithfulness through Nehemiah's leadership to organize the people in connection with the genealogy of the original wave of exiles that had returned to the land over 100 years earlier. Then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we saw the initial sparks of revival break forth in the midst of a people that were in great need of God's power, great need of God's rescuing grace in their lives. And how did this revival occur? Well, it's the same way revival has always occurred, whether that was the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century or the Puritans seeking to purify the Church of England in the 17th century, or the Great Awakening here in the United States, or even even any revivals that we may experience in our life, it always happens. True revival in connection with the Word of God. It occurred through the Word of God when Scripture became the foundation of their lives the foundation for their faith, the foundation for their family, the foundation for their finances, the foundation for their very future. Every facet of their life was being rebuilt on the foundation of the unshakable word of God. And as God's word was clearly read and clearly taught to the people, they began to discover, like we do, ways that we've disregarded God. We've disobeyed him when they began to see God's word and examine their lives. And then that led to Nehemiah chapter 11. I'm sorry, chapter 9 with the long recounting. I don't know if you remember that chapter where they recount Israel's roller coaster history of sin and rebellion held up by God's faithfulness to show mercy to his wayward people time and time again. This recounting of Israel's history then led to a confession of sin and a deep, heartfelt repentance, a repentance that led to a community-wide resolve to be united by covenant and renewed in the commitments to obey God's word together. And then last time, aside from the like 100-plus names I had to read, praise the Lord, we don't have that many in this chapter. We looked at chapters 11 and 12, where we see the grand finale, poof, confetti, fireworks goes off, yay! The people are organized. The people are lit up. They are unified. 
And then they are mobilized to move back into Jerusalem and back into the promised inheritances all around the city. And last time we left off, we saw that the people had an expression of an unrestrained gratitude. All the musicians are ready. All the singers are ready. The choirs are ready. The people are ready. And look with me at Nehemiah 12, verse 43. Nehemiah 12, verse 43. It said this, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Friends, just as an aside, that's what we want God to do in our hearts. We want people from far away to hear that a flock in Barling, Arkansas, have unashamed joy in Jesus. Pray that God would bring that about. This morning, we pick up now in the last chapter where we see another window into Nehemiah's example of leadership and some of the ongoing reforms that he had to make. And friends, as you listen to this chapter, there's some bizarre stuff in this chapter. Don't get sidetracked by it. You might do a little elbow jab later. But as we read this, think about what the Lord's instructing to us today and how we want to see God's people continually reformed to the word of God. Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashah the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. 
Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and their, and their assistant Hanan the son of Zechur, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good.
This is God's word. You'll notice at the very beginning of chapter 13 that this last chapter opens up with some ambiguity with regards to the timeline. At first glance, it's somewhat unclear on when this graphic, emotional, daytime talk show, scratch-heading series of events takes place. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 1, we read, on that day, they read from the book of Moses, so forth and so on. What day is this referring to? Well, back in Nehemiah 12, verse 43, the text reads, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Then in the very next verse, verse 44, the verse states, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, contributions, etc., So we should ask ourselves, is what is about to happen in Nehemiah chapter 13 occurring the same exact day as this wonderful celebration service back in chapter 12? Well, friends, you have to realize that chapter 13, written at the very end, you see Nehemiah use a lot of personal pronouns, I, there. It's written from the vantage point of much like a flashback. He's looking back in the rearview mirror. And there's two other verses that kind of give a little more light on where we need to put this in the timeline. A timeline that could either be a couple of years earlier or perhaps what I think several years later. Look with me in verses 1 to 3. I want you to look at these verses 1 to 3 as we see the people of God do something very similar they had already done in chapters 8 to 11. Verse 1 on Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So here we see is really just a repetition of what they had already been doing in chapters 8, 9, and 10. They hear the clear reading and teaching of God's word. Here, the book of Moses, it's referred to, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when they heard the words of the living God, they responded to it by obeying what they heard. And friends, that's what should characterize us here each Lord's Day at CCBC. We gather together to sit under the word together in order to hear by faith, receive with humility, and by God's help, obey the truth God speaks to us. James puts it this way in James chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed 
in his doing. Friends, when you hear the Bible taught and when you study the Bible for yourself, do you intend to obey what you learn? This morning when you showed up to CCBC, amidst of the amazing cinnamon rolls and fellowship and the songs we're singing, has it even crossed your mind that God has something for me today to hear and apply to my life? Friends, we should never come to God's word without the intent to respond in obedience. Friends, pray that God would remind each and every one of us every time this book is open not to be passive and negligent of what we hear, but to be active and dialed in to obey what we hear. And this reading this time for the Israelites is most likely an exposition from Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 6. You can look at that text more closely in your own time, Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 6. But for quick reference, this was a prohibition of certain categories of people that were rendered unclean or disqualified from entering into the worship assembly of God's covenant people of Israel. Among these laws, some were excluded because they did not worship the one true God. Uh, Why did they not want unbelievers in their assembly as Israel? Well, because of Israel's history. They continued to be wrongly influenced by unbelievers in their midst. Their leaven-like ability to sinfully lead God's people astray had been the repetition for centuries. Uh, God had wanted to keep the worship pure and not mixed with other religions. And so unless these other nations repented of their idolatry and by faith trusted in Yahweh, they were not allowed to enter. And we know that also partly from what we read verbatim in Deuteronomy 23, which refers to the fact that no Ammonites or Moabites were ever allowed to gather in the solemn assembly of Israel. And you might be saying, well, boy, God, that still just seems rather, you know, inclusive or exclusive, right? You know, why were they not allowed? Why were these foreigners singled out amongst all the other nations and not being allowed to enter? Well, Nehemiah 13 verse 2 tells us. Nehemiah 13 2 alludes to it was because of the previous betrayal and harsh treatment of God's people in generations past. Specifically, it's in reference to the Moabites, who hired a prophet, Balaam, to try and stop the people of God from their wilderness journey towards the promised land. Balaam was hired and sought out to inquire of God and that God would pronounce a cursing on these people. But through the unique, and you thought Nehemiah 13 is crazy, you ought to read Numbers. Through the unique and amazing story of God rebuking a man with a human voice through a donkey. God took the curse that the enemies of God meant for evil against his people and turned the curse into a blessing. Uh, Why is that so profound here in Nehemiah 13? Well, this is a fulfillment of a promise, a promise all the way back from Genesis 12, verse 3. You might say, well, Blake, what's, what's Genesis 12, verse 3 all about? Well, you can read the whole chapter on your own time. 
But Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 is where God makes a promise to Abram and his offspring that they would eventually become the nation of Israel and that God promised to Abram and his offspring that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. If you want to read more about this amazing account in Israel's history, read Numbers chapters 21 to 24. Numbers 21 to 24. Now look with me at Nehemiah 13, verses 4 to 7. Nehemiah 13, verses 4 to 7. The timeline gets a little more specific and I think gives us a little more clarity on when exactly the rest of Nehemiah 13 happened. Look with me in Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 4. Now before this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after Sometime, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. As we've seen previously, in Nehemiah 5, verse 14, Nehemiah had been appointed governor in Jerusalem for a 12-year period. And we know from Nehemiah chapter 2, if you want to go back there, you can look there on your own time. It was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that Nehemiah had gained permission to leave his cupbearer duties in Susa the citadel to travel over a thousand miles to Jerusalem. And it was there in Jerusalem that he would be called by God to lead the people in rebuilding the walls as their appointed governor. So... From about 445 B.C. to 433 B.C., that was Nehemiah's primary charge, to govern the people of God and oversee the rebuilding and revitalization project. Friends, Nehemiah was really sent for this one overarching mission, to see God's people restored, revived, and the holy city of Jerusalem rebuilt. And all of it for God's glory and their joy. And apparently, after this 12-year term of his service as governor, he returned back to King Artaxerxes and spent some time there in Susa, the citadel. But why? Why did Nehemiah pack his bags and leave Jerusalem to go back to the king over a thousand miles away? Why did Nehemiah pack up and just leave? It's a pretty good question. I mean, things have been going really well, right? He had a good thing. Why leave it? Well, he may have left simply to report to the king how everything was going back in Jerusalem. 
You remember Nehemiah 2? He was terrified to ask permission for the king because the king could chop off his head if he's disrespectful or not a good cupbearer. But he basically, you know, asked for permission for time off and God granted him favor. So Nehemiah is probably just being a man of his word. He said, boss, I need some time off to go like rebuild a city for like 12 years. (laughs) Please? (laughs) Yeah, sure, no problem. What, What do you need? So he's probably going, you know, I made a promise. I probably need to go back and return to the king. It may have been that King Artaxerxes wanted him back. I mean, he was an amazing cupbearer. He had great form. But he was very trustworthy, and maybe he wanted Nehemiah back at his side. Or maybe Nehemiah just thought his job was done. You ever had a checklist at work? Or maybe a long week of chores at home, and you're like, All right, it's done. I can throw it in the trash and move on with life. Nehemiah thought, well, I fulfilled the ministry God gave me. Time to move on to the next thing, right? Whatever the reason is, we're not told. But what we are told is that when he gets permission to leave the king and return back to Jerusalem, things are not so well anymore in Jerusalem. The holy city has now become sin city. The city that God had revived and blessed with his favor to make his name famous and glorious among the nations had begun to be smeared in the mud once again. Kids, have you ever been putting together a really complex puzzle? I mean, it's the kind of puzzle you want to show off to your friends. You're taking selfies. You better not have a cell phone, but maybe you grabbed your parents. And you're doing this amazing masterpiece. And then about 20 minutes later, you come into your room and the whole puzzle is in shambles. It's scattered all over the room. Or if you're not a puzzle person, how about Legos? I know some of you adults play with Legos, I'm sure. You've got this amazing Lego set and you have spent weeks on this amazing masterpiece. And then you come back into your Lego collection and find that someone has kicked it, broke it, and left it all over the room. Or for those of us adults who are cleaning the house, you say, I want everybody out of here. We're going to do some spring cleaning in October. And five minutes after people show up, there's muddy footprints all through the house. It's like a gut punch right to the stomach. Tons of hard work, tons of labor, tons of energy, heart, body, all you got for something you were aiming to accomplish. But then in a matter of a few moments, it's gone. Friends, many of the reforms Many of the good changes that Nehemiah had implemented in Israel were starting to come undone. The work he had given himself to by getting up early mornings and staying up at, late at night to do. The work he had poured himself out with blood, sweat, and tears for months and months, and friends, 12 years for. The work he had withstood persecution, slander, hatred, and fearful threats of his life for. 
the work he had invested over a whole decade of his heart and energy towards this work, beloved, was starting to fall apart. The paint on the wall was peeling off. The roof on the house was starting to cave in. Oh, friends, far from simply a Lego set or muddy footprints on the floor or some other puzzle that gets thrown to pieces, something of much more eternal significance was imploding in God's city. The peace, the unity, the organization, the momentum, the obedience of God's people was being reversed in the opposite direction. You see, in probably just a short amount of time, the disobedience among the people of God was beginning to decay and rot in the city. Much of Nehemiah's hard work was getting thrown in the trash. Nehemiah shows back up. He's got his bags. He's refreshed. King Artaxerxes put a little snacks in there for him because he's his favorite cupbearer. He takes his Uber donkey and he finds out that the city is not the way he left it. It's in really bad shape. To Nehemiah's gut-wrenching shock, the beauty, the glory, the joy that was once resounding amongst the people is beginning to erode away. The once reformed and revived people of God begin to go back to the old days, to their old patterns of hypocrisy, ungodliness, and spiritual darkness. The white-hot flames of revival were beginning to fan out in the midst of a cold, wintry wind of spiritual apathy. Friends, do not forget when God is doing a powerful work among his people, the enemies of God will do everything they can to try and stop it. Just when things seem to be going so good, Nehemiah turns his back just for a little time. And with an aggressive fury, the demons are let loose in the house of God. When the cat is away, the mice will play. Brothers and sisters, we all by nature are like sheep who go astray, each to our own way. We are all prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We are all prone to walk off the narrow path of obedience to God. Friends, that's why we needed to be shepherded. That's not a CCBC vocabulary word. That's a Bible term. Jesus is our good, great, and chief shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep, the sheep he knows by name. He lays down his life for them, and he leads them, and when he speaks, they hear his voice, and they follow him. But friends, they are hired hands that pretend to be shepherds who like to lead Christ's sheep into really bad places. Friends, any time we cut ourselves off 
from the regular study of God's word. Anytime we isolate ourselves from the accountability and authority of godly elders and a biblical local church with meaningful church membership, we all can find ourselves led astray by the wrong leaders and deceived by the wrong voices. In Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem, that's exactly what happened. How did the sheep go astray? We could summarize it in four ways. You're taking notes. These are useful, I'm hoping. How did they go astray? Number one, I'll list them out one by one throughout the next few minutes. Number one, ungodly leadership. Ungodly leadership. They allowed ungodly leadership to take residence in God's house. That's what happened in verses four to seven. We read for the first time since chapter six of that deceitful and hateful Ammonite man, Tobiah. He's back. Friends, let me just, again, another aside here. You can fight fierce spiritual battles, and the devil and his minions will flee, but they will come back at an opportunity and a time when you least expect. Tobiah had family ties with the priesthood, and apparently he leveraged who he knew and who he was related to to slither his way back into the camp to campaign and make his way into the ranks of leadership among God's people. In fact, what is so grotesque and just outright evil in this situation is that he was literally given a clubhouse seat, a top-notch man cave, an executive suite located in the very confines of the temple of God. In other words, he didn't just get on payroll on staff at the church. He got the best seat in the house, God's house, and he made himself at home. So much that he got rid of all the basic supplies used for worshiping God's house by the priest in order to make room for all his stuff, to suit his own agenda, to begin his demonic deconstruction of everything Nehemiah had worked so hard to build over the years. To add to the dog pile of depravity, Tobiah's co-conspirer of evil, he's back. Remember Sanballat, the Horonite? Look down in verse 28. You see there in verse 28, not only is Tobiah back in the ring, it says, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashah, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Friends, Tobiah and Sanballat had family ties with the people of God. They were using who they knew and what they knew to slither their way back into the temple of God. Friends, when the cat is away, the mice will play. And that might be a cute nursery rhyme, but when it comes to God's people, that's really bad news. When faithful shepherds are absent, wolves in sheep's clothing will come in and God's sheep will suffer for it. 
Friends, if you've lived long enough, the average age of our congregation is kind of that range between 30 and 65. I think we've all, at some point in our lives, seen the rise and fall of leaders. We've seen this play out time and time again. One bad president can wipe out a previous president's helpful and good policies in just one term. One bad coach can ruin a team's entire season. One bad pastor can send a ripple effect of chaos and disorder when people naively trust him over against the Bible. Friends, you may hear me say this time and time again, and I don't care if I get told that I repeat the same applications. I'm hoping it's sticking. But I'll say it again. Pray to have biblical discernment. Pray for God to give you biblical discernment, to see truth from error, to expose darkness and walk in the light, to know the difference between the voice of our shepherd and the voice of a liar. Friends, I want this church to be equipped for spiritual warfare. It is the sword of the spirit. It is intercessory prayer. It is coming up under godly, qualified under shepherds of how we're going to face the battles of this life. Friends, pray for discernment. Pray that God would give each one of us discernment as you affirm elders in the future in this church. Pray for discernment on what bosses you choose to work for. Pray for discernment on who you vote, elect, or choose at the local, state, or national level. Friends, pray for whatever leaders you are coming up under to fear God. To fear God. Friends, pray that Christians in the River Valley have discernment when it comes to what preachers and pastors they give their money to and listen to. You've got friends right now, you know. You've got family members, you know, right now that are sitting in a building paying for spiritual junk food with God's money. Be bold in compassion, but be bold. Sound the alarm and help people you love have discernment not to sit under unqualified leaders in God's church. Oh, friends, Israel fell prey to that. The devil had a condo in the church. Secondly, the sheep went astray by number two, unfaithful stewardship. Unfaithful stewardship. They had become unfaithful stewards of God's resources by neglecting to care for God's appointed leaders. As you may recall from Nehemiah 10, one of the commitments that the people of Israel made to God and to one another was to carry out the prescribed instructions to care for the Levitical priest. They were the spiritual leaders in Israel who gave themselves to the sacrifices, the daily, the weekly, and the yearly task of offering worship to God. They're here in Nehemiah 13, verses 10 and 11, the tithe of the tithes, were not being given to the appropriate leaders. It's so bad that the Levites, the priests, had to leave Jerusalem and go find work and somewhere to live out in some other field. In other words, 
the very people they should have been prioritizing, the tithe of the tithe, the first fruits, they were totally neglecting. Friends, that was, that was a really bad decision. Without these priests, without these Levites, what happens? Someone else gets put in place to represent God or represent the people before God. Friends, at CCBC, we should continue to renew our mind in what the Bible teaches about money and about how we are to prioritize giving through the local church. Friends, where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. A Warren Wiersbe has said, where there is true spiritual revival, it will reveal itself in the way we support God's work, beginning in our own local church. Friends, if you put the wrong people, if we put the wrong people in charge of overseeing God's resources in the church, we can turn the church to look more like a pragmatic theme park or a Fortune 500 company rather than a ministry that prioritizes the preaching and teaching of the word. Friends at CCBC, pray that we would remain biblically faithful to how we use God's resources in his church. Pray for the elders to be wise and biblical in how we lead you in this endeavor. And may the ministry of the word always take precedent in the life of this church. May it always be the chief focus, for faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, Thirdly, the sheep went astray by being seduced by the temporal cares of this world. Being seduced by the temporal cares of this world. Instead of being set apart as God's special people, they were being preoccupied. They were being sucked in by. They were being seduced by the cares of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. The seed of God's word had been choked by the craving of greed worldliness, at the neglect of the worship of God. Again, back in Nehemiah 10, one of the covenant commitments that they made in Nehemiah 10, 31 was having reverence in regard for the first or one day out of seven from their ordinary work and commerce, the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was the sign of the Mosaic covenant that visibly set the people of God apart from the unbelieving nations around them. While everyone else is doing business as normal, living however they want to live, spending their time on whatever their fancy is, doing what they want to do, showing the God or gods they truly worshipped, the people of Israel were called by God to set apart a whole day to be preoccupied and focused on God, to rest from their labors to trust that God's provision for that day would be enough. When verses 15 to 21 of Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah had encountered the Jewish people carrying on business as usual on the Sabbath day. And they did it with unbelievers. Verse 16 says, Tyrians. And in all places, in the city of Jerusalem itself. The holy city had become sin city 
And they really didn't see much wrong with it. Their disregard of the Sabbath was not some arbitrary rule they chose not to follow because life got busy. No, by disregarding the Sabbath, they were showing that God is not number one in their life. Friends, look at your calendars. Look at your bank account. Look at my calendar. Look at my bank account. These are x-ray exposures of who is number one in our life. You see, the Sabbath day was to be the benchmark, not the climax, but the very bottom shelf standard. If God's number one, take apart one whole day to be preoccupied ultimately with him. The fact they disregarded the Sabbath was not just life got busy, it's because God was not number one. Leisure was number one. Money was number one. Shopping was number one. Making business deals was number one. Sleeping in was number one. Partying was number one. Going to ball games was number one. Fill in the blank. These things were number one. God just got the leftovers. Friends, I've only been pastoring for about 10 years, but it didn't take me very long to figure out what's going on in people's lives when I began recognizing their absence from the Lord's Day gathering. We know that vacation comes. We know that sickness comes. We know the providential hindrances come. But I can mark it almost every time when someone is not in regular fellowship and regularly gathering, setting apart time to worship God with God's people, I can almost count it every time they're drifting. They're drifting. They're drifting. This is not a big church. I know who's not here. The elders know who's not here. The members know who's not here. This isn't the police brigade. This is we're concerned. We care. We know it's dangerous out there. We need the warmth and fires of God's truth to keep us close to him. Friends, if, if you notice anyone not here regularly, reach out to them. Tell them you miss them. Tell them you're praying for them. Ask about what's going on. And I think Nehemiah 13 could be one place of many that you'll find out through a little bit of a loving conversation who or what has become number one over and above God. Fourthly, the sheep went astray by being unequally yoked in their marriages. By being unequally yoked in their marriages. They had disregarded God's good and wise commands to marry only those who feared the Lord. In verses 23 to 27, Nehemiah gets hot. He gets really hot with what he sees in the marriages in Jerusalem. In fact, look with me at verse 25. I do need to make a comment on this because if you read it in your quiet time or you heard it this morning, you're going, whoa, what's he going to say to this one? Look at verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them. By the way, I don't think curse just means foul language or, or abusive speech. Uh, the covenant had both blessings and curses. He was probably pronouncing judgment on them, saying if you don't repent, God's going to bring forth judgment. That was a curse. So Side note, don't cuss people out. That's bad, that's sinful, that's not anything I was doing. Back on track. And beat some of them and pulled out their hair. 
It could have been hair on their beard, by the way. It could have been a long mullet. We're not really sure. And then he says this, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. What on earth is Nehemiah doing here? Good question. Well, aside from Nehemiah pulling an MMA move on the dudes who simply married the wrong women, Nehemiah is displaying God's displeasure through him. He's being an instrument to reveal God's wrath and indignation towards what his people have done. He's being bold. He's being firm. He's verbal. He's emotional. And in this context, he even got physical. Friends, God's word does not endorse or command. We get physical with people because we're angry at them or they made bad decisions. I don't want anyone to think Nehemiah's hair-pulling body slam is what you should do to your siblings this afternoon or your bosses this week. No, don't do that. You do that, you'll get arrested, and it's your fault. But friends, at the same time, get past the hair-pulling. Get past the beatdown. He's angry at what God is angry about. He loves what God loves, and he hates what God hates. Friends, the mild and meek Jesus that gets painted like a frail gardener at Hallmark or some other card shop is baloney. Jesus went into the temple, took the tables, threw them down, whipped all these people out of there and said, get out of my temple, get out of my father's house. You have brought the world into the house of prayer. Get out. Christ physically displayed his strength and his anger when you mess with God's house. Friends, if we need anything more to Christianity today is to have zeal for the things that matter. It's good to have your blood boil every once in a while when you see bad leadership, bad preaching, hypocrisy, abuse. It should make you angry because God is angry. He is angry with the wicked every day. Friends, we aren't God, and we cannot enact God's vengeance on others. We give place to God's wrath. Oh, but friends, pray that God would cause each one of us to have a righteous anger, to actually hate the sin in us and also hate the sin in others because sin is dangerous. Why was Nehemiah so upset, though, over these unequally yoked marriages? Friends, as we've already discovered in Nehemiah 9 and Nehemiah 10, they were to yoke themselves with other people who feared God within the nation of Israel so that they would raise up godly offspring after them. To bring in ungodly, pagan, unregenerate people would also be bringing in the idols with them, which means it would contaminate the holiness, 
the worship and the beauty of God and his people. Friends, if you want to be warned about how dangerous our hearts can be when we listen to our hearts over God, read 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11 verses 1 to 11 is exactly where Nehemiah goes. He goes, you remember Solomon? You remember Solomon? He was loved by God. He was the wisest man on earth. And his heart turned away from the Lord because of the women that he married from the nations. Nehemiah takes a lesser to the greater and he says, look at who already fell before you. Take heed to the warning. Yoke and marry only those who clearly love Yahweh. May Solomon be a warning. Brothers and sisters, whether it's marriage, whether it's ministry, whatever it is in our life, we should grow in our love for what God loves and our hatred for what God hates. We should never think that we are above committing any sin either. We should not think we are strong enough to play with sin if God says, flee, run away. We should not presume on God's mercy by deliberately disobeying God, thinking that we can ask God for mercy later. Friends, we should not presume that God's spirit will continue convicting us if we resist and sear our conscience. Friends, God is determined to make us holy before he makes us happy. Do not listen to the lie. Well, God wants me to be happy. Therefore, I will choose this sinful action. That's not from God. That's from a very different spirit. He wants to make us holy like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the willful pursuit of disobedience to God is always the first step towards a hardened heart. Smaller sins, if I can just use that for the common vernacular, always will snowball into bigger ones. Thomas Manton once said, it is Satan's custom by small sins to draw us to greater. As the little sticks set the great ones on fire and a wisp of straw kindles a block of wood. For the Jews in Nehemiah's day, they had relapsed back into their old ways of living. Ungodly leadership, ungodly stewardship, seduced by the temporal cares of this world, unequally yoked marriages with unbelievers. Beloved, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. But Nehemiah, though he was a sinner too, He was a sinner who loved God and was concerned about holiness. He was concerned about godliness. He was concerned about obedience to God and being faithful to him. Friends, how can we at CCBC today learn from Nehemiah's example? How did Nehemiah respond to the relapse of rebellion in God's house. 
Friends, you've already heard me say this, but he responded with righteous anger. It's the same way Moses expressed anger towards Aaron and the Israelites when they formed the golden calf, Exodus 32, 19. It's the same anger the apostle Paul showed when the Judaizers were teaching a false gospel in Galatians. It's the same anger that our Lord showed in the temple when he overturned tables and got people out of the temple and rebuked the hypocrisy of the Pharisees all throughout his ministry. And friends, Nehemiah was not a brawler by nature. He did make an unusual decision in that moment. But what we should learn is this. He did not back away. He confronted evil. He confronted it. Didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't let bygones go be bygones. He was bold, even if it was costly for him. Friends, he didn't care if Sanballat or Tobiah canceled him, censored him. He was going to do the right thing because God cares. To my non-Christian friend, God does not turn a blind eye towards our sin. And listen, there are no such things as secret sins. You know that, right? It's, it's so contradictory. We say, well, it's a secret sin in my life. Um, you know about it, and God does. Not a secret. God sees everything. God sees everything, and he warns us like Nehemiah did the Israelites. Don't play with sin. Eternal Hellfire awaits those who perish in their sin. But the good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for that sin debt in full. Jesus willingly didn't leave Persia or Babylon. He left heaven and entered into this world of evil and confronted evil head on. Jesus didn't shy away from calling out sin. He certainly preached and taught against it. Oh, but friends, Jesus did not merely use his words. Jesus gave up his very life to die in our place for sins that we have committed against God. Jesus came to do more than simply overturn tables or throw furniture out of the household of God. He came to die. He came to die for all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. Jesus' cleansing in the temple was a foretaste and a preview of Jesus cleansing the temple of his people. Sinners who by faith receive him as Lord and Savior of their life and are welcomed into God's family. Friends, if your faith is in Christ this morning, you have been washed. You have been justified. You are being sanctified. And friends, one day you will be glorified. You see, the nations of the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, men like Sanballat and Tobiah, they raged against Nehemiah's leadership. But according to Psalm 2 and Acts 4, the nations of the whole world rage against the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. Oh, but friends, the raging of the nations is futile. He who sits in heaven laughs. Jesus resurrected from the dead and seated at the right hand of God and he has now been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's given his church 
his people on earth. They've been authorized. We have been commissioned to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to make disciples of all nations. Oh, friends, and by God's grace, something much greater than one city like Jerusalem will display the glory of God. Habakkuk 2.14 says that one day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day, friends, the mission will be completed. The church, the bride of Christ, will be cleansed and made like her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And on that day, his people will rejoice with him and rule over a new heavens and new earth, a place where God's people happily commune with their God under his rule. So friends, what does that mean for us? How should we respond to this Savior and King? Much more authority and much purer and awesome than Nehemiah, Jesus comes to us and he reveals areas of our life that are not in conformity with his will. There's things in the temple of our life, the temple of our thought life, the temple of our relationships, the temple of our church, if you will, where he continues to show us with perfect clarity where we've relapsed, where we've gone astray, where we imitate the world rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the way we respond is repentance and obedience. In love, we should help one another do that. You know what else we learned from Nehemiah's example? Loving confrontation. Confrontation is really a bad word sometimes. So I think a good word to use is a brotherly or sisterly reproof. A brotherly or sisterly, sisterly, sisterly correction where we come alongside a brother and sister and we notice there's some things in their life that are not conforming to God's will. Friends, that's not what super radical Christians do. That's what normal Christians do. That's what not radical, super spiritual churches do. No, that's what real churches with real Christians who don't want to live fake lives do. We all sin. We need help to make it to glory. He's given us the body of Christ, and we're not here pulling out hair. That's not the news. That's the new church discipline method here at CCBC. But not sweeping it under the rug isn't either. Friends, let me ask you a question. Do you have any brothers and sisters in Christ in your life right now? Like, just be honest. That has 100% access to call you out when you're in sin. Do you have anybody in your life that's a true Christian, that the door is wide open, there's no trespassing, there's no, like, lasers, there's no key they got to get through? I mean, it's just an open-door policy. I'm humble enough to know when I'm off, I want you to tell me when I am. Do you have anyone like that? Brothers and sisters, pray that God would give you that. That's what should be normal in our church. Not policing each other. But as a father would a child, as a friend would a friend. Say, hey, I noticed your attitude lately seems a lot more worldly than godly. I see that you've, ah, that sounded more like gossip, sister. 
That didn't sound like edifying speech. Hey, I don't know if that's actually true. That's kind of a half lie. That's actually true. Hey, I noticed the way you talked to your wife the other day. Was she offended by that? I know my wife would be offended if I heard those words come out of my mouth. Friends, it's just like that. It's loving confrontation and care for each other's soul. Friends, do we want God's glory to be on display in our church? Then it will take hard work to reform our lives always to the word of God. Grace Life Church of the Shoals, pretty cool name, a Reformed Baptist church located in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, has learned this timeless truth over and over again. Jeff Noblet has been the senior pastor at Grace Life Church of the Shoals for over three decades now. In his very small booklet, Born to Reform, kind of catchy, he gives a snapshot summary of how God brought revival and reformation to his unhealthy church that he pastors. Notice what he says and how we can learn from this church's example. I have been on the pastoral staff of my present church for more than 25 years. In the beginning, I planned to immediately begin reforming many policies and procedures after I was voted in as senior pastor, but God had accelerated course in mind. On the fifth day in my role as senior pastor, a prominent church leader who had strongly and openly been opposed to my becoming pastor was found to be an open and scandalous sin. There was much pressure to sweep the issue under the carpet. I knew because of the person's prominence and the scandalous nature of the sin that public correction was necessary. This was best for the guilty person himself, for the good of the local body, and of course, for the glory of God. The first few months of my pastorate were very difficult and painful to say the least. We lost close to one-third of our active membership. Many who left went about spreading lies throughout the community concerning the dismissal of the member found in scandalous sin. One thing did happen. The commitment to deal with sin in the body in a biblical manner was well established. Over the next couple of years, we developed policies and procedures for compassionate and loving church discipline. Since then, hundreds have been removed for neglecting church attendance and many others for adultery, drunkenness, and other sins. God has chosen to glorify himself by letting us see several who were dismissed come back into church membership with humble, repentant hearts. I remember the first time a publicly disciplined member stood before the congregation in tears, thanking the church for dismissing him from membership. He stated that God used the dismissal to bring him to repentance and give him victory over the sin in his life. He and all others who have been restored after discipline are received with total forgiveness and smothered with love and acceptance from the membership. An increased spirit of love and humility within the body always marks the weeks following a dismissal for sin. And usually, an increased number of new believers are added to the church. Pastor Noblet goes on to talk about the amazing fruit over 30 years of ministry of elders eldering and deacons deaconing. What an encouragement. He says this, the focus on God's glory and on being Bible-saturated has sustained me through many dangers, toils, and snares. I'm convinced that any lesser purpose and I would have either left the ministry or run away in fear. The warfare of reforming a church is severe and seemingly at times unrelenting. 
a strong passion for his glory in the church is the only sufficient anchor to weather the storms of reformation. The book of Nehemiah began with a broken, humbled man on his knees, weeping, fasting, and praying for God to bring revival. The end of the book of Nehemiah closes with a prayer from a broken, independent Nehemiah. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Friends, when you contemplate that one day you will give an accounting of the life he gave you and the stewardship he gave you, what do you think the Lord will say of you on that day? What will the Lord remember of what you did that he empowered you to do for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we join with Nehemiah this morning and the saints throughout the centuries. We need revival and we need reformation. We all like sheep are prone to wander. We all like sheep are prone to relapse into our old ways. Father, we pray that in Christ Jesus, we would see that we have a wonderful shepherd, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Lord, we pray here at CCBC that we would lovingly enter into one another's lives, not in self-righteous or arrogant judgment, but to help one another grow, to speak the truth in love, because we care about what you care about. Lord, cause us to be zealous for the things that you're zealous for. Cause us to love the things that you love and hate the things you hate. Well, we pray at CCBC if any one of us are tempted to drift and drift and drift. Well, we pray that our brother or sister would pursue us. And we pray that we too would pursue others in love. Father, we love you and we thank you that in Jesus he will carry us home. He is strong and he is kind. It's in his name we pray, amen.